My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the post-credit pod. Eric Italiano and I continuing our Mandalorian Season 2 recap, review, breakdown, analysis, whatever you want to talk about. Before we hop into that, though, earlier this week, it was announced HBO Max will be hosting Wonder Woman 1984 on Christmas Day. That's big news. But maybe even bigger, more immediate news that just broke. Eric, Deadpool 3 at Marvel Studios officially has its writers in tow. It is moving forward. It's actually happening. Pop the champagne, let the confetti fall. Just got its writers. And the writers are Wendy Molyneux and her sister Lizzie Molyneux-Loglin. I apologize. I know I'm absolutely butchering those names. But you probably know them best as some of the writers and executive producers over at Bob's Burgers. Eric, do you watch Bob's Burgers? I have not. Okay, so I've seen the first- But I've heard great things. I only hear great things. I've seen the first three or four seasons, and it's just, it's absolutely hilarious and wonderful and amazing. So, I mean, the fact that Deadpool's moving forward, great. The fact that these creatives are on board, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, I mean, and it tells me that they are going to continue with its core of being a humor-based character. Yeah, big time. And Justin Kroll at Deadline, whose story it is, also said it is still expected to be R-rated. Now, that has been the case since Disney uh, first bought Fox. I can't remember which executive at the time, but multiple executives said, like, you know, when we do figure out what to do with Deadpool, it's important that we don't change the core of the character. So it has been long expected that he will remain R-rated. That's great news. It'll be very interesting to see how they weave him into the MCU, given that his origins on screen aren't tied to that. But I'm also curious that if Deadpool 3 is R-rated, kind of opens up the door for Blade reboot to be R-rated. Opens up the door? I think this busts the door wide open. I hope so, open. but Mar- Marvel's still going to marvel. You know, they want PG-13 first and foremost. I'm yeah, not yeah, yeah, yeah. But as we've seen with Logan and the first two Deadpools, which are the top two highest grossing R-rated films of all time, there is a market for that. And as you and I talked about on the last podcast, how... The only way for the MCU to, is, to, to go is up. And the only way that they could do that is by adding characters, which is not inherently a good thing. That exponential growth could take it to the point where it pops. But as you sort of pointed out, this moves it along the other axis where now they could tell different types of stories for Definitely. different types of people. So if you're telling me that they're going to make an R-rated Deadpool – I would argue it's easier to make a PG-13 Deadpool than it is a PG-13 Blade. I would so, agree with that. So if I, listen, Ryan Reynolds is going to pop up in a cameo somewhere. You know that. So if I had to guess, I would say that this is almost bank it, that Blade gets R as well. And even though it's a Disney Plus show, this also sort of is good Blade's for- Blade's going to be a movie. For, no, no, no. Sorry. Moon Knight as well. This bodes yeah. well for how dark they are willing to take that too. I, I agree. But still, you know, I think Disney is doing what is smart with Deadpool and not changing the DNA of the character and recognizing the past success. 
and everything that we've talked about on the show before, expanding the scope of what kind of stories they, they tell. But they are still Disney, and they do still want the core of their blockbuster properties to be family-friendly. So I'm not willing to 100% say that they are going to eschew their entire history uh, in terms of, of branding as the family-friendly empire. But you're right. This, this is getting us much closer to what we want to see from a Blade, from a Moon Knight. And like we talked about when Oscar Isaac was cast, we don't necessarily see him signing on for, you know, as long and as big of a commitment as TV shows can be if it's hunky-dory PG with barely a little darkness. So one thing, Eric, that we have also talked about when touching on Deadpool over the last few months doing post-cred pod is that we're curious how they weave him into the MCU. Now, I would bet that he's going to make a cameo somewhere. I would bet that he'll transition between R-rated solo films and PG-13 appearances in other people's films. And I would bet he would, uh, I think we've said this on the pod, that he'll, he'll curse and he'll be a beep. And he'll be like, what the hell was that? And he'll make a meta self-reference joke about like why he can't curse anymore because he's under Disney. But how do you see it all coming together? Because I'm curious what the, might, the golden opportunity to first introduce him might be. Is that a solo film? Is that a, an appearance elsewhere? I don't know. I've long said that what's nice about Deadpool is because he has that fourth wall breaking characteristic, he can literally look straight in the camera. And you and I usually dunk on hand-waving, but in this case, he could, and it, and it would be true to the character. He could look at us and be like, yeah, I'm here now, so what, deal. And then as you said, try and curse, and it gets bleeped out. But in terms of how I think it actually works within the framework of the plot, it has to be related to what's going on with Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and that the corner multiverse. of the MCU. I don't see it being part of the, as we've talked about, or no, I, actually you take this, since this is your sort of theory, how the MCU is sort of branching off into two ways. Oh yeah, so what as we've talked about on this podcast, and I think you're seeing it with Blade and Moon Knight and She-Hulk and Shang-Chi on one side and with what's going on in Division, Spider-Man 3 and Doctor Strange 2 on the other side, the MCU is basically branching off into a mystical realm and a kind of supernatural multiverse realm. And those are two very distinct genres and styles to embrace. And that's really cool. And that's really exciting. And like you said, it could be the perfect bridge for introducing Deadpool. And if the, if they want maybe the X-Men, uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different theories about WandaVision may create the X-Men and, and uh, Fantastic Four may be introduced via the quantum realm and Ant-Man 3. There's a whole bunch of theories. This is yet another example of, of one direction they can go. And it would make sense, you know, kind of like a uh, into the Spider-Verse type of scene where he gets sucked into a portal and he's plopped out like next to Stark Tower or something like that. And he's like, oh, I guess I'm here now. I think you make a great point in that I could see Deadpool coming in via the Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, the multiverse route. I could see the X-Men coming that way too. The Fantastic Four, I am all in on your Ant-Man theory about how they're trapped in the quantum realm i think that would be i can't take full credit for that no that's, i know but you're but, but you're the one who brought it up on this show so yeah. that counts for me um hey, take it and then i brought this up when we talked about moon knight 
Do we think his own film is the first time he pops up? Deadpool? I think, obviously, if they're getting writers right now, I would expect production to start in 2021, which means we'd probably get a 2023 film, maybe a late 2022 film, something like that. Man, it would be so easy for him to pop up in a post-credits scene in a Spider-Man 3, you know, in a Doctor Strange 2. So I think it's very possible his first appearance is not his own solo film because he's someone who can traverse storylines and and universes like that. As far as I know, him and in the comic books, him and Spider-Man are buddies. Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with it, but I do know that they have a, a ton of interaction. And I do know a bunch of people on film Twitter have been calling for a Spidey Deadpool adventure for years. Given that that's how they look set to bring in Jamie Foxx's Electro and really introduce the idea of other characters from other film universes and with Spider-Man 3 in production right now. There you go. It wouldn't surprise me if they filmed a post-credit shout-out scene (laughs) in that film and he pops up there. Spider-Man 3 is going to be huge, right? If they release that in a normal world and it has all the characters, A, that we know of, Electro, Doctor Strange. If Doctor Strange is there, who knows if Scarlet Witch may pop up. There's the potential of more Spider-Men coming back. That is a billion dollars plus guaranteed, right? It's shaping up to be one of the bigger MCU films of all time. Given their comic book relationship, what a perfect chance that would be. Especially Tom Holland's version of Peter Parker and Ryan Reynolds is, you know, Wade Wilson. It's this very innocent, like, kind of floppy, awkward kid with, like, this, you know, the Merc with a mouth. It is the perfect one, too. And they're both very fast-talking. So that, like, back-and-forth banter will be very quick-witted and sharp. It will be tough though because for Deadpool like you said he can literally look into the camera deliver one line and we all accept it as the explanation for Spider-Man and those types of things bringing in other versions of the characters potentially that exposition needs to be really really well thought out it needs to honestly hold weight because one we're obsessive nerds who are going to pour over every single detail just like the uh, Thanos time travel BS in Avengers Endgame and and two I mean, this is something that hasn't really ever been done on the big screen at this scale. So it, it genuinely has to be explained well. Whereas Deadpool, like we said, he can just waltz in there and do whatever he wants. Well, right now, that is the biggest challenge that they face, right? How are they going to integrate a character like this with what they've built thus far? It's going to be tough because Deadpool is not as he only R, but he's hard R. Like, it's not just like he curses. He talks about sex and shit that is opposed to who the MCU's target demo is, which is, you know, kids who are 12-ish. But that said, if they are going the R route where they are willing to branch out and create films just for an older crowd, I think that's a phenomenal sign because, as you said in such a great point, expands the axis upon which they could tell stories. I, I wouldn't be totally surprised if Disney releases a solo Deadpool film still under the 20th century banner, you know, an R-rated film that's, that is still absolutely in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but isn't necessarily branded as a Disney production. You know what I mean? Kind of like 
it's a different situation, but the Spider-Man movies are Sony movies that are produced by Marvel Studios. Now, that's a great point. Do we think Deadpool 3 will continue the arc that began in 1 and 2, or do you think they're going to sort of wipe the slate clean and use Deadpool 3 as more of a bridge? Well, I don't think they're going to wipe the slate clean. Like, everything that happened to Deadpool will still be, you know, quote-unquote canon, and I'm sure there'll be even references to it, but I do think because they now have to figure out how to get him into this new universe that Deadpool 3 will will very much be its own story you know because that is a big task to do so it's not like hey we got to spend 30 minutes talking about Vanessa but then you think about the fact that they have Brolin's cable in that world who was supposed to be a big character for them going forward and it gets very complicated my hope is 100% within the first couple minutes of Deadpool 3. He goes, you know, Cable, you sound like Thanos or something like that. Because it, it just you cannot leave that unchecked. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's exciting. I just think, bottom line, the MCU's newfound commitment to the, the multiverse is a very cool route. If you've thought that these films That's were... well, because I could also see it going horribly. Yes, but as I say on this pod all the time, until they prove me wrong, they have my full trust. That's a completely, completely fair uh, uh, opinion. And even talking to box office experts like I do for my articles at Observer, almost every single one of them says, don't bet against Disney and Marvel. Do it at your own peril. And now, you know, this also tells me that the X-Men are probably next. I, I remember there was, there was like a 2018-2019 report that said it's going to be at least five years until we see X-Men. I can't remember the specifics of that report, but that did make sense because they also want to give a big gap for fans kind of moving beyond the Fox X-Men franchise. So five years makes sense. So that would be, you know, early, early 2020 sometime. Gotcha. So bottom line calls. I am expecting Deadpool to first pop up in a Spider-Man 3 post credit scene. I am expecting Deadpool 3 to come out, as you said, in about 2023. I do expect it to have the R, which, thank God, uh, I think that that bodes well for Blade as well. And I think that Deadpool 3 will put a bow on the Fox story and then serve as a bridge to getting him in the MCU. You? It's a very good summation, Eric. I can't argue with any of those. All right, well, that's one superhero franchise down. Let's switch over to another. DC, Warner Brothers, Wonder Woman, 1984, coming to HBO Max and theaters at the same time, at least for U.S. audiences. If you're listening to this overseas, you can either go to the theater or you're shit out of luck. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) But, Eric, this is, without a doubt, the biggest, largest scale, hugest budget movie to ever go to streaming Ever. So that in and of itself is a big deal. In a sense, I can't believe it, but I also can, right? Like, we've yeah. seen this coming for a while now, but you just said it. The scale of this film, if you think about the first Wonder Woman, I think of it as one of the best comic book films of all time. It is widely thought of to be the DCEU's best film. So the fact that This one, which from what we've seen in the trailers so far, looks perhaps better than the first one. In a normal world, if it had good word of mouth, it probably could have topped 1 billion worldwide. 
So the fact that a movie like this is going to be available to stream on the first day that anyone can see it is, and I'm sure you'll take the sad point of view because they're <laughs> theaters. I think it is incredible. This is something I would have liked to go see in theaters, of course. But all that said, as much as I enjoy theaters, having the choice, I think that's the key, right? And in the non-pandemic world, I hope that that is how it is. If you want to go see something in theaters, go ahead. But if you want to rent it at home for $40 or if they want... That's what shocked, and now I'm going on a long rant here, but that's what sort of shocks me, right? That they didn't pull a Disney Plus and charge you for it on top of that. Oh, they will after the fact. So it's, it's, on, it's on HBO Max for one month domestically. Then it will be taken off and the rest of the theatrical run, both here and internationally, will be allowed to play out for however long that is. Then it will move to like 4K, VOD, you know, DVD, Blu-ray, all that stuff. Right, but you could still sign up for a one-week trial of Max and, and watch it for free. As of right now, yes, I'm predicting, because this is what every other service has done, that they will be axing their free trials a week ahead of uh, HBO Max's release. But Okay, no, smart. Listen, this is the biggest film to ever go to an at-home platform. I, I actually am, am not sad, because I think this under-the-pandemic situation is a smart move. It's a great growth driver for HBO Max, which is Warner Media's number one priority moving forward. But I do think it basically underscores the fact that post-pandemic, let's say when we're relatively back to normal, movie theaters will only exist for blockbuster franchise event titles. Almost everything else, nearly everything else, except maybe like a, a low-risk, high-reward Blumhouse horror film is going to go to either streaming or PVOD right off the bat. And as you're seeing with Universal, which has signed three deals now with AMC, Cinemark, and Cineplex, they are busting the exclusive theatrical window that franchise titles used to play in, which was 60 to 90 days before you could even dream of PVOD. So under this new agreement that Universal's creating that I expect the rest of the industry to follow suit on a, on a, in the near timeline is uh, any movie that opens above $50 million domestic will stay on in theaters for 31 days. Then the studio has the option of putting it on PVOD if they want. And any movie that opens under that is guaranteed 17 days. And then after that, if the studio wants, they could throw it on PVOD. So exactly what you just said, giving the viewer a choice, that's what we're getting. I mean, right now it's just universal, but I promise you other studios will join up on a long enough timeline. So I think this is a, a great move given the pandemic situation. I think it's a smart move for the streamers and it is basically reflective of what the film industry is going to be in a post-pandemic world. I would say my bottom line as a fan is that while this is something I would have gone out and seen, and oh, yeah, if exactly. theaters come back, I will continue to go to them. Same. But that choice is big. And now that that's here, it is exciting. Because I am literally thinking Christmas Day, this is priority number one for me. Like as ridiculous as that sounds, like I'm going to wake up and this is going to be the first thing that I want to do on Christmas Day. I mean, the holiday season has always been a huge box 
box office boon and and underratedly we're still kind of getting a great holiday season you know we've got we've got soul on disney plus christmas we've got wonder woman 1984 hbo max christmas we've got uh the midnight sky december 18th on netflix we got bridgerton shonda rhimes's new tv series that's getting a lot of hype you know we we have a handful of kind of attractive titles to get us through what we normally would be like oh we want an avatar or a star wars or an aquaman so kind of interesting to see the the new normal let's put a bow on it do you think in a fully post-pandemic world, let's say that's an entire year from now, right? Will they continue to do this or will they go right back to the old way of doing things? It'll be a mix of both, but it'll be 90%, you know, the old way. And I think you'll see what everyone, what Universal is doing. You know, if a franchise title's killing it, they're going to keep it in theaters. If not, they now have the option, as long as they strike those deals with movie theaters, to move it to PVOD after a couple of weeks. So right. that's what gotcha. I think we're going to say. Same. Okay. All right, let's get into The Mandalorian. All right, <laughs> let's get into it because you and I have been very, very, very consistent dating back to last season about our criticism. And everyone listening who listens regular already knows what we're going to say, so we'll keep that short. And that is Eric and I do not love the episodic challenge of the week format. We like more serialized storytelling, you know, more overarching narrative, uh, you know, less of these side quests. Having said that, I believe The Siege, episode four, is the best of both worlds. It is an extremely action-heavy, entertaining side quest that also delivers vital information for the show's plot line, the bad guys, the overarching story, and sets up a back half of season two that is connected and very, very serious in terms of what they're trying to do. And I loved it. I, the best episode of the season, in my opinion. This is the sort of bottle that I can totally live with because... The bottle you pop. They're not introducing arbitrary new characters on a random world. He's reteaming with old friends that we've met, that we know on a planet that we've been to. And the side quest is not fighting some sandworm or some ice spider. It's fighting the empire. And again, as long as it's tangentially related to the main plot, it doesn't even need to be in the thick of things. Just even the fact of the challenge of the week being against the empire and not some random creature. That makes it stronger for me. Yeah. So I feel the same way as you. I think that this is the best one of the year so far. I think they've now put in two straight good weeks. And as I put out in a tweet, all the trailer footage has now been used. Really? All of it. All of it. I didn't know. I not a single frame has not been used. So, so all of the trailers that we saw preseason two have been the first four episodes. Yep. Wow. Okay. So I that says to me, yep. of, of course that that every and show especially is especially with the way that this one ended, it you can totally see why. Yeah. That 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 says to me that they have some big things in store for the back half, and some of which we know, Ahsoka Tano, probably a Boba Fett second appearance, something like Next that. Next week's summer title is Chapter Thirteen: The Jedi. You know that's my style. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that gas right there. Yeah, that's that gas right there. All right, so to get into it a little bit more. I just want to point out, Carl Weathers directed this episode. Apollo Creed himself 
and he acted in it. I mean, that is just a stunner right there. When that popped up, I was like, because I didn't look into who it was beforehand, and I was like, good for him, Carl Weathers, because there's a lot going on here. Um, yeah. Awesome. Let's dive in. So this episode opens with Mando and the child. They're heading back to Navarro because the Razor Crest, I believe you called it a, a hoopty. A hoopty. Yeah. A hoopty. This bad boy is in need of some repair. So <laughs> they, they land on Navarro. He gets to reteam with uh, old and busted. That old busted joint. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's looking bad. It's, it's seen better days. Uh, Mando gets to reteam with Grief Karga and Cara Dune. And I want to just point out before they land, he's attempting to fix the ship. And he is doing such a dad son bit with Baby Yoda because he's trying to teach him like where to put the wires and everything. I wrote down cutest baby Yoda all season. Would you, would you agree with that assessment? Yes. And because he's using his brain, right? It's not just like him being like a dipshit. It's like him actually trying to do something, but then because he's learning, it's inherently cute. Yeah. And I mean, that's a real father son moment. That's like what every father son does. Hey, hand me that rent. Look like that is when they're not using him as a sideshow and he's actually being developed as a character and not a pet like this is yeah. when those awe moments work the best. And it reflects well back on Mando. We're like, wow, this guy isn't just a caretaker. He's full-blown daddy right now. He's clearly learning. Yeah, he's clearly, clearly learning. Like, look at his cute little patience with Baby Yoda. Yep. He's such a good guy. Yep, yep. All right, so, so he's on Navarro. He reteamed with Grief Karga, who is uh, Carl Weathers, and Cara Dune, who is uh, Gina Carano. And we learned that Gina Carano's Cara Dune is now a marshal. And that her and Grief Karga have essentially kind of cleaned up this sector. And what was once a crime-ridden bounty hunter town is now this thriving kind of wholesome suburban space town. They're, in place of the bounty hunter bar where so much action took place in season one is now a school being taught by a protocol droid. It's like, it's like a legit society. I don't know what this says about me, but the number one thing that that school reminded me of was the school in Snowpiercer. <laughs> I I could see that. Yeah, you know, this kind of otherworldly dystopian, you know, what whatever is going on. That's pretty good. And I guess we'll get into that when we get to that part, but they're clearly trying to tee up Cara Dune to, I don't know, be like a standalone hero, maybe. This very much felt like a backdoor pilot to her long rumored spin-off. Uh obviously Gina Carano herself as as a person on on Twitter has kicked up a ton of controversy and i just want to say you know gina carano could kick my ass but i i don't think she's a good actress I and mean, this is me really not trying to be a dick based on my personal feelings towards her i just don't want to see a show with her as the lead she's not good enough who's asking for that character to get her yeah. whole show that would be them clearly not learning from how they fucked up with rise of skywalker and such and getting too greedy. Yeah, that, that's a brand diluting move. Exactly. So naturally, because this is Mandalorian, he's not going to just meet up with old friends, have a drink and kickbacks. There has to be a side quest involved or else this wouldn't be the Mandalorian. So they rope him into going out and destroying a former Imperial base to basically ensure the continued safety and prosperity of their thriving little new town. Now, because this is a, you know, big, splashy blockbuster drama, what we thought was a little, you know, harmless former Imperial base is actually a very active research lab. 
And that is where the episode starts to kind of kick into high gear for me. As soon as Moff Gideon's path has crossed path with Mando, and the moment that that happened, the dramatic stakes of this show elevated immediately. It had a tension that it's lacked all year. It's just sort of la di da di da his way through space. As soon as he realized Moff is not dead, boom, alerts go off in his brain. And I was like, yes, now we're getting it. But what I want to ask you is, do we think Grief knew what it was? I I think he was as shocked as everyone to find out. I think he he was genuinely like, you know, this is just a skeleton crew at an old Imperial base. Let's, Let's take him out. I don't think he knew, especially because this is clearly the heart of Moff Gideon's operation and his clandestine uh goals for the future of the the new empire so i I don't think anyone outside of the need to know basis knew now now this is where we need your star wars brain because there's a lot of deep cut stuff going on here yeah and we will certainly touch on some of it even more in our awards and categories but what you're saying the paths finally crossing while in there they realize it's not just a, uh, you know, regular old base after some hilarious stormtrooper kills, especially the, the jet pack uh, up to the top and then a guy just falling as they're having a conversation. They essentially stumble across a hollow message to Moff Gideon from seasons one, season one's Dr. Pershing, who was working with Werner Herzog's character. And we know from season one and eagle-eyed viewers that he had an emblem connected to the Camino from Attack of the Clones, the, the, the cloning planet. So he is in that hollow message talking to Gideon. He mentions that the blood of the child contains a large M count, which has to be a reference to midi-chlorians. We see kind of half-formed creatures or, or entities in these large like Bacta tanks slash test tubes. That all combines to tell us, the audience, that what has long been speculated about Moff Gideon's endgame is that we believe he's trying to reverse engineer force-sensitive soldiers and, and armies so he can have the kind of strongest military force in the land. And as the wielder of the Darksaber, I wouldn't be surprised if he's also trying to imbue himself with force-sensitive abilities. And I wrote about that for Observer this morning. You can go check it out. Just to jump towards the end here, I think the ending sort of confirms that as Moff seems to be standing in a room of armor, like pre-made armor shells for an up with bodies that need to be filled. So connecting those two dots, that looks like what we've got here. But now the key is when Pershing says we've taken the blood of the child, are we to assume that that is what was used in those clones? Yes, I believe so. And that's when, remember when Mando saves him in season one and he's on that table? I think that's when he was drawing blood care. Of course, yeah. And he specifically says, and I think that that's a direct link to that scene, I could only take so much and not kill him. And, you know, Pershing clearly didn't want the the kid dead. He may not be like straight up evil, but he's clearly like, oh, the science ends justify the means. So my hits bong theory is that as we sort of discovered in Rise of Skywalker, but what really needed more explanation, Palpatine basically used dark magic and cloning to create Supreme Leader Snoke. 
my my wonder, my question is, do you think Palpatine and uh, Moff Gideon might have been working together? He might have been connected to the unknown regions forces and just basically, you know, swapping techniques on this force-sensitive creation. That's a great point because... One, yeah, one of the biggest oversights in Rise of Skywalker's screenplay, and there are a plenty to choose from, <laughs> is that they, Palpatine has this 10 billion man army. Uh, yeah. So, but I don't want to see them link into the Skywalker saga. I don't need that shit. Let this, let Moff be doing his own thing. That said, it's hard to see the fact that we know that Palpatine is out there. Any Empire-related figure doing any type of force sort of science without Palpatine knowing, right? Like, it sort of seems like you're not going to sneak that one by him, (laughs) which sort of worries me, right? Because if that's the route they go down and loop us back to to a tale that we just I don't think they're going to do that. I think if if there's any connections whatsoever, it's going to be Moff Gideon telling an underling, like, ah, my master will be proud. And, like, that's it. Okay. A mere reference. I could live with that. I could live with that. But the idea of, like, if they – because we talked – it was either last week or two weeks ago. If How long do we think the Moff arc is going to last? Is he the overarching villain for the whole series? Is he going to die halfway through this season? Given the scope of what this episode laid out, it looks like he's going to be the series-long villain because they're not going to... he just gets killed at the end of the season? No, because they're not going to tease him building an army and then not have him build said army. And that's going to take a while. I think he could... I think they're teasing that, but I could see at the end of this season them wrapping up the Baby Yoda storyline, giving him back to his kind... And, and moving on to, like, the next phase of Mando. I could see that. Also, by the way, this a, episode... That is a hit bomb theory. Are you kidding me? Holy shit. I think the entire core of this show is Baby Yoda growing alongside Mando. I love and that, that. he's going to realize that he has no family and that he is his family. Listen, uh, I, I love their dynamic, and I, and I hope to see more of it. You don't think I that that's... Really? You think that they could separate Baby Yoda from this series? That seems insane to me. I think I think they could, man. It, it brings that arc to a close. He's kind of given it back, and then it sets Mando up to be directly involved with uh, Bo-Katan and like the actual retaking of Mandalore. You're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> I can't even respond to you. I just wonder how long they do this kind People of. People would go up retake. in arms if Baby Yoda was not in this show. I could see him being. He's the main character. Season. And then coming back in season four or something like that. But also, underratedly, this episode reveals who Baby Yoda is in terms of the origin of his species. Did you catch this? No. He is clearly, as in, as displayed by this episode and really the whole show, an American baby because he is clearly about to do battle with childhood obesity. Motherfucker is never not snacking, and this need this is a problem. Mando needs to get on this sugar intake. He seems to like be down for it. He he went from not feeding him enough to feeding him too much. Yeah. All right. So they they find out all about kind of Moff Gideon's overarching plan, which is something Eric and I have talked about so much. We needed this information. We needed the direction of where this plot was going. 
and their escape from this imperial stronghold with you know lava exploding and they're being chased by tie fighters which still to this day make the coolest sound ever i can't even begin to like try to to do an impression but you all know it that i just thought that was all really thrilling really well done good action on top of the vital information that you and i needed to feel like this was a cohesive plot i have literally been saying for weeks just show me moff gideon on a destroyer have yeah. I not said that? That's really, all, that's really all I've been saying. And that, that's all I needed. Quick shot. Show me where he is, what he's doing. That is exactly what they did this week. Thank you, finally. And now I think, and as we said at the top, from here forward, it's just going to be a downhill sprint. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think a very smart, light touch that they put in to kind of wrap that all up was the New Republic pilot interviewing, you know, Cara Dune and, and Grief Karga, and essentially keying us in that the New Republic is aware of connected former Imperial power moves. Now, not only does that do a little bit of world building, which I think is good, it's like, oh, wow, we have these two powerful factions that are aware of one another, but the audience knows that the First Order is about 20, 25 years in the future. So what we're seeing could be the seeds of you know that movement and i think that's an interesting little tie-in that like you said we don't want like palpatine popping up or anything but these small little connections that aren't so overt i think are pretty cool and help to establish this connective tissue yeah it's one thing to acknowledge that it exists out there it's a new thing to loop it into the plot itself i could live with one but i cannot live with the latter so overall again like we said Really, really fun, action-packed uh, episode that kept an eye on the end game, which is what we've been begging for this whole time. Finally, it feels a little bit like a serialized drama. Yeah, this is back-to-back -back very strong weeks. And knowing what we know about what I pointed out about the trailer footage, that's very exciting. Yes, Ahsoka Tano. Ahsoka Tano, Brandon is a Jedi nerd. I'm worried it's not going to look good, I got to say. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. To, uh, I, I, she's not a Twi'lek, is she? She might be. I can't remember what you her species is. You are talking to the wrong guy, my friend. I can't remember what a species is, but anyone who knows what Ahsoka Tano looks like, yeah, it's going to be tough to do in live action. Having said that, I would say 90% of the creatures Mandalorian has introduced have looked good. Fair enough. That's true. Yeah. That is true. We'll see. Maybe next week. So is there anything else from the plot breakdown that we missed? Uh, there's that dog fight, which we'll get to later. Right, so, oh, let's uh, give it a rating on a scale of 10. All right. On a scale of 1 to 10 dark sabers, I would give this... I, I would give this probably 9 dark sabers. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I really like this episode. 9 is high. Nine is high, but I mean, listen, I don't think it's ever going to get beyond a nine, no matter how long this show runs. You know, I don't think I'm ever going to give this a 10, 10 Darksaber score. Um, I, I don't know about that one, man. All right, I'm going to go with 8.5. Yeah, that's a fair, very fair rating. So we both agree that this is probably our favorite of the season, right? Yeah. Would you say this is like a top three episode of the whole show? I am partial to episodes one and eight in season one right i think that those are definitely locked into the top three it's a, that's a very fair statement to start off with yeah for sure i mean those are i mean but mm, 
I might even do two. I might do two over one just because I love when he saves Baby Yoda and that Jason Bourne takedown of the of the compound. Yeah, I mean, I think the best one so far has been Chapter Eight. I don't even think that's a dispute. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. So yeah, I would say this flirts with top three, if not definitely top five. Yeah, agreed. Agreed completely. All right, let's hop into our awards and categories. We're going to get into a, a little bit of the nitty-gritty. First one is your favorite of, of, of the awards. That is this week's kill count. How many did you get to before you threw in the towel? All right, I tried. Cara Dune's first scene, she kills four. Then when they first start the siege of the base, they kill four more troopers outside. He throws one off the roof, and then when they get up there, they see three more on the ground. I would say the roof kill and then the, the couple minutes later lava kill where he, that guy's falling, those are both my kill of the week. But those, but that is where I started to track, right? So, all right, so they kill four going into the base and then they kill inside like an Empire suit. He's not like a storm trooper, but he's like a guy in a gray suit who's in the, yeah. I don't know, control room. And then they kill two more suits who are in front of the clones. And then beyond that point where they just start to go nuts, I just lost it. <laughs> All right, that's there's, there's too many. They're dropping bodies left and right. Amid the bodies dropping, I did think it was cool that Horatio Sanz's character from the uh, premiere episode in season one comes back and like, throughout this little adventure, he goes from being so disillusioned and like hating his life to being like, oh, I'm one of the good guys now. Yeah, yeah it's a good That character. was an acute little touch. Yeah, he's fine. All right, trips to the Jedi Temple where, where we discuss any references to Jedi, the Force, lightsabers, and again, M count to me has to be midichlorians. And for any of those that don't remember the god-awful Phantom Menace, which, you know, good, good for you, uh, midichlorians essentially measure a Jedi's Force potential. And Anakin, as a boy, was like setting records with his midichlorian count. Clearly, Baby Yoda has some serious midichlorians going on. And what they're doing is using the midichlorians and the blood of baby Yoda to try, in our opinion, to create these Force-sensitive soldiers to give Moff Gideon a seriously elite squad if he's able to pull that off. Yep. That's going to be tough. But that's the only one I caught. I don't think there was any others. That's it. Yeah, so that, that was pretty much it. Uh, how about the baby Yoda aw and or holy shit moment of the week? Now, for me, to begin, when he's teaching Baby Yoda how to connect the wires and everything, that was adorable because that was a real father-son moment. And then speaking of real father-son things that happen, especially with toddlers, when he looks at Baby Yoda, he's eating the blue macaroons, Baby Yoda looks at him with his big, cute eyes, his little smile, and just bleh, barfs all over himself. That has happened to every kid on the planet with every parent going like, God damn it, now I have to clean this up. I just thought that was adorable and so realistic. Yeah, so for my awe I had uh, when they're doing the whole wires thing, my holy shit is it's the first time that he's used the Force so far this year when he yeah, stole the uh, blue snacks. So while that's not really a holy shit, it is the first time that we've seen the Force this year. So I think that it had to be pointed out. Agreed. No, that, that was a good call. And I do like how Baby Yoda is following in Anakin's footsteps because Anakin uses the force to help Padme cut her food in episode two, Attack of the Clones, when he's like, he's laying on the flirt, like full court press. Oh and I just God. like that Baby Yoda is also getting that food force Oof, going. I am more glad than ever that I have not seen clones. 
All right, speaking of the force, our weekly use the force moment, which is really our award for the best action fight moment of the episode. Man, this was a good one, but I re- I really liked the TIE fighters chasing the little air tank that they were in and the speeder bikes chasing the little air tank they were in. I just thought that was awesome. Uh, for mine, I'm going with the dogfight at the end with the ties and the razor crest, which is no oh, yeah. longer a hoopty. That old busted joint. Is it like the Falcon in the sense where it's like an old piece of shit, but it's an absolute ripper? Like, is that I what's going so. on here? But also, like, he lands, Garf Kiga, whatever, Grief Kiga, is like, hey, guys, fix this guy's ship. They then bring him into, like, the meeting room and say, hey, we got to go take out this base. They then go take out this base. They then come back. I mean, maximum, tops. He's gone, like, six hours. There's no way they can fix that ship that quickly. Yeah, it looked great. Mando was whipping it, and he was doing all – so, like, he's an ace pilot, hand-to-hand combat fighter, sniper. Like, this guy has just got it all, man. We did forget to point out that – when they were repairing that ship, Moth Gideon's people put yes. a tracker on his ship. Good, great call, because that also sets up the, the probably very soon-to-be conflict. Uh, the next award, I think we kind of knocked this one out, but this is the Wookiee Award. Anything deep-cut nerdy, we might think casual fans need further explanation. Uh, I mean, we hit on the M-, M count, Pershing, where he comes from couple different theories that we might have i i think we've got that if, if there's anything anyone wants more clarification on or just to talk about hit us up on twitter at postcred pod because we would be happy to engage in nerdy conversations rather than doing actual work <laughs> <laughs> we don't work all right and now our last one this is the way we think things are going to go predictions for the next episode eric you're rearing to go on this one you've got one locked and loaded hit us well as i said at the top there are strong rumors that next week's is called the Jedi. So I think next week we're going to meet Ahsoka Tano. Woo! But my further one is that hopefully, I mean, look, now that Moth is tracking him, how long are they going to not pounce, right? Are they just going to sit around and wait? So hopefully Moth makes his move next week and we see Ahsoka in action. I mean, I would love that. I would love if she came to the rescue of Mando because he's always coming to the rescue of everybody else. Because, right, we know he's being tracked. We know he needs the kid because he needs more blood. So what is he waiting for? Logically, it makes sense that he would go after him right away. It's like, I know where you are and you're pretty close because you were just on the planet where my base is. Exactly, exactly. Now, my prediction, it's a little bit more general, but I think Cobb Vanth and Boba Fett will return in the same episode. I don't know when that is, but I think Mando, Boba, and Cobb Vanth all in the same room, and Boba being like, you're the one who took my armor to Cobb Vanth, is just going to be a great little conversational scene. And I don't know how they're going to use Boba Fett, who's supposed to be a bad guy, but something cool is going to happen with that trio together. I like that a lot. That's good, because as long as... Boba Fett pops back up and was not strictly used as a, I don't know, That'd teaser for, yeah, that would be disgusting. So gotta hope he comes back. But then again, how? Either Mando needs to go back to his planet, Boba needs to track him down, which I don't even know how he would begin to do at this point, so. It'll be fuck really it. interesting to see, but uh, but I'm fuck excited. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but fuck it. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. That's about it. Is that it? 
great week. Next week is going to be popping as well. I'm hyped. We were low on it in the first one or two. We were like, eh, okay, but now I think they're back on track big time. I, I agree completely, and I, I think they're starting to hit their stride. And as we've discussed in this episode, it really seems like Chapter 4 set the groundwork for a serialized back half of Season 2. Yep, hell yeah. All right, until next week, you guys. All right, Omen. Peace. Make him an awful guy. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. <laughs>